Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interlegi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests in sharing experiences, information and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher to name a few. You can learn more, connect to the Loop Me In community and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. We are keen to talk with Professor Mark Belgrove today on our podcast. Mark is the Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health and a professional in cognitive neuroscience at Monash Uni. Here he leads a team studying the biological basis of attendant cognitive control. He is the forefront of international efforts to identify genetic risks in ADHD. Mark, welcome to our podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I guess the first thing maybe some of our audience doesn't know, explain to us what ADHD means. Sure. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, one of those terms that you often hear a lot about, but it's good to get down into the nitty gritties and, and talk about what it is and perhaps what it, perhaps also what it isn't. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning its onset is early in life, as for a range of other neurodevelopmental conditions. And it's really defined or diagnostically defined by two main symptom domains. One is inattention and the other is a dimension known as hyperactivity, impulsivity. And inattention is probably the types of things that you might think about. So has um, the child might have problems paying attention or concentrating for any length of time. Uh, they might be distractible. Their attention might be you know, easily caught by Uh, things in their periphery, they might not do well in cluttered environments, for example. And then hyperactivity, impulsivity, the hyperactivity part of that is a child who is sort of almost uh, constantly on the go. The term can be often as as if driven by a motor. Uh, The the impulsivity can be has trouble controlling uh, their actions. They might uh, blurt out answers in class. They might interrupt people constantly. They might have get themselves into trouble by doing actions because they haven't thought through the consequence of that action. And these symptoms uh, need to exist in a persistent form. Uh, then they need to exist across multiple settings. It can't be that they just are there at home, uh, but at school the child doesn't display any of these. And the most important thing I think that for your audience to understand is that they need to be impairing. So we can all have some symptoms of ADHD. If we do a checklist that you might see on TikTok, for example, Uh, many of us might score up. But really the core for diagnosis here is that those symptoms are present. And for for ADHD, we have to have um, six out of nine of the symptoms uh, in either inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity. But the point is that those symptoms have to be caused having a real functional impairment or a real functional consequence for the child. Uh, So they have to be really struggling in the school area. For example, in the home, they can Obviously, these symptoms are causing a lot of functional impairment. Without impairment, there can be no diagnosis of ADHD. And so we really want to emphasize that because I think people forget that with the symptoms, there has to be uh, impairment as well. And it's the impairment that we're particularly worried about, right? Because we want the child to be doing better in their life, coping better, performing well, et cetera. Symptoms in and of themselves aren't necessarily 
a problem. They can be a trait, uh, like many other uh, types of personality traits that humans have. But when they become impairing and a problem for the child and the family, that's when we need to worry about them. And do you find that um, ADHD sometimes accompanies other neurodiverse situations? Yeah, or conditions, sure. Yeah, that's um, what's known as uh, comorbidity, so concurrent conditions that exist within the one child. And, the, you know, the usual uh, phrase here, Lisa, is ADHD always brings a friend and, and actually comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception for ADHD. So in childhood, the most common comorbidities or co-occurring conditions, for example, some of the what, what are known as disruptive behavioural conditions, uh, opposition defiant disorder, conduct disorder, autism spectrum disorder can be very common, sometimes OCD, sometimes Tourette's syndromes, for example. So yes, other neurodevelopmental conditions frequently coexist. Also, the learning disabilities, for example, dyslexia and other forms of learning problem can be quite common in kids with ADHD. And it is a diagnosis most common in and increasing in children. However, we've found in the last decade there's been an increased amount in adults. How do you deal with someone that eventually finds out that they have ADHD as an adult? Yeah, look, it's um it's a, a really topical point of discussion that right uh, why are we getting this flurry of adults who are coming forth and a lot of um, celebrities coming out particularly women at the moment um, declaring that they've struggled and finally got a diagnosis of ADHD and look to my mind this is a, a positive uh, development currently we feel based on the data that we do have uh, we need more data uh, but we feel that adult ADHD is probably at this point underdiagnosed in Australia and undertreated in terms of the number of um, scripts for medicine that are written. The uh, worldwide prevalence for adult ADHD is about 2.5% of the population. And at the moment in Australia, we think, you know, diagnoses are sitting under that. The childhood prevalence, uh, worldwide prevalence is about 5.5%, say. And in Australia, we're sort of hovering around that, that level of diagnosis. We're pretty good for detecting kids uh, with ADHD. So as to why uh, or how you, you deal with a diagnosis in adulthood, the, the manner in which you make the diagnosis is pretty similar to childhood. It would uh, be a clinical interview. There must be a, an interview conducted with a specialist. That could be an adult uh, psychiatrist who specialises in ADHD or a psychologist who specialises in ADHD. And again, there has to be functional impairment attached to those symptoms and that might be in the workplace setting, the home setting, wherever it might be. And ideally, there'll be a historical record showing that that person uh, really had struggled with symptoms of ADHD, even if they weren't detected way back when into their childhood. So many clinicians will ask, if possible, for the adult to bring school reports. And if there you know, is a history that can be uh, brought to bear there, that would significantly aid uh, the diagnosis in adulthood, sometimes even if the parent is still around, uh, mum or dad might be asked what the person was like in childhood. So you're trying to bring as much collateral evidence, I guess, to that diagnosis in adulthood. We want to be obviously do it very thoroughly, do it very rigorously, but also we want people to be able to get the help if they need it. And I guess the, the other element that I guess is coming into focus a lot is why why women particularly are coming forward in adulthood and 
And I guess the point there is that um, in childhood, the number of boys diagnosed compared to girls is in favour of boys by about two to one, so roughly about twice as many uh, boys are diagnosed as girls. And we think that's probably because the presentation of girls is a little bit different uh, in childhood. It's not necessarily the outward hyperactivity that you would associate with the child. It's not necessarily uh, the disruptive actions that bring the child to the attention of the teacher, et cetera. Girls can be, tend to be a little bit more inward in their presentations that may present actually uh, very similar to anxiety. But we think what likely happens there is across development, and we don't know fully, but the onset of puberty, for example, may be a bit of a trigger that starts to unmask some of these uh, symptoms that the girls are experiencing. And then as demands start to pile on, you know, with adolescence, more schooling demands, et cetera, you know, the girls can often report that they're just having a lot more difficulty coping. And then as you both know, both being mothers yourself, as you get into adulthood and you've got even more pressures piling on kids and work and all the rest, it can all start to unravel a little bit for uh, women who have ADHD. And, you know, and that's probably uh, where they're coming forward and, and trying to seek out help. They might report then that they've always struggled. They never declared it. They'd always struggled, but they couldn't put a name to it. And in adulthood, here they're presenting. Uh, with the symptoms of ADHD and often feeling pretty regretful that they've had to struggle through their whole life with this condition and, you know, I guess regretful that life didn't necessarily need to be as hard for them as it has been. And so um, diagnosis and then receiving some treatment can often be this big change point where, yes, they do better, but they also often can have this period of regret and grief for what could have been and, and a life that could have been uh, easier. So that, that can often occur at the point of diagnosis. Do you think that um, maybe the comorbidities are different for boys and girls and maybe yeah, that's, that's why the boys are diagnosed more frequently than the females? Yeah, yeah that's entirely um, possible, Lisa. The presentation in girls can be a bit more, you know, a bit more anxiety and depress, depressive symptoms uh, related, which of course, maybe the symptoms that get treated rather than the ADHD per se, whereas boys, it can be a little bit more about impulsivity, et cetera. But look, to be honest, uh, we need many, many, many more girls and women involved in our research studies because the samples on which the findings are based uh, have been very biased towards boys and men. So, you know, we need a much bigger push to get girls and women across the lifespan involved in studies. Yeah, for sure. We um, interviewed somebody um, last week, didn't we, that had ADHD herself. Her husband had ADHD and and children mm. uh, that also had it. So, and she was diagnosed as an adult. And I think, um, you know, that was gave her insight for her children as well. Mm. Can you talk about the genetics involved? Because I, I also know somebody um, through work that has a husband who's ADHD and uh, her child has ADHD as well. So mm. is, that, is that something that's common? Yeah, look, um, ADHD is a uh, highly heritable, heritable meaning it runs in families. It has a, a genetic origin. It's a highly heritable uh, condition. And I often use this, you know, as a form of myth busting, right, because there's some people out there in the community who don't necessarily believe in the diagnosis. But if you actually look 
at the data from lots of lots of large uh, twin studies, including some done in Australia, two identical twins. If one has ADHD, it's you know highly likely that the other uh, will as well. And so the heritability estimates for ADHD are very similar to other uh, serious conditions such as autism or schizophrenia. But of course, um, you know certainly the public discourse has moved on to acknowledge that there can be biological origins for those conditions. But for ADHD, uh, sometimes people still struggle to realise that. So, so yeah, we do know it's highly uh, heritable. And we also know now from large-scale international studies, some of the genes that are involved in predisposing to ADHD. So ADHD is what we call a complex uh, trait or a complex condition, which means it's not due to one single gene. You know, some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with single gene disorders. So, for example, Huntington's disease uh, is a gene that arises, is a a disorder that arises from mutation in one gene. In ADHD, it's not like that. It's uh, many, 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 many different genetic variants that sort of aggregate or add up to increase your, your risk for ADHD. And that's also true of many other traits and disorders that we study generally. I feel like we could talk to you all day, but can you um, explain to us some of the projects you're working on at the moment? Sure. Yeah, look, so, um, you know, I guess there's two strings to my bow, uh, as it were, uh, at the moment, because there's the research that I work on at Monash University. And then in another aspect of my life, it's work uh, I do for the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. Uh, So I I can tell you a little bit about both. So the work in our lab is very much focused on trying to advance our understanding of um, the genetics and neurobiology and I guess um, cognitive and brain networks that are involved in ADHD. So one of the things we're quite excited about at the moment is that we have um, derived a stem cell line uh, from people who have ADHD. Uh, So what this um, or the point of this is that uh, we can start to get a handle on what's going on within the neurons in the brain of folks with ADHD. So we we had some families who very generously gave uh, some blood and were happy to have stem cells derived, which, uh, which we did. And now most recently in the lab, we've been able to differentiate or turn them uh, into dopamine neurons. And now we can start to study whether those dopamine neurons uh, from people with ADHD might be different to people who don't have ADHD. And, and the reason that's important is, or interesting, is that the medications we use to treat ADHD are primarily ones that act on uh, the dopamine uh, system in the brain. But we don't have sort of an objective evidence uh, that dopamine neurons in people with ADHD are any different to people who don't have ADHD. So by building this stem cell model and this dopamine model, we can start to explore that type of hypothesis. So that's work that's been done in my lab by a very talented PhD student by the name of Artifa and my uh, longtime colleague, Dr. Zara Howie, who manages our genetics lab. In other work, we're starting a trial to see whether kids who have both ADHD and autism uh, respond uh, in the same way to stimulant medications that are routinely uh, used uh, for ADHD. Uh, lots of kids who have the comorbid condition do take stimulants, but 
There's a bit of anecdotal evidence that sometimes, uh, although the ADHD symptoms can improve, sometimes the, the autism symptoms can actually get worse. Uh, so we're doing a trial of that at the moment with another PhD student uh, whose name is Mia Moses. And so, uh, again, very excited about that. And then on the other side is, is the Australian ADHD Professionals Association, where we were very fortunate to have the ability to lead uh, the development of Australia's first evidence-based clinical practice guideline for ADHD. And that was approved by the NHMRC and launched by uh, Minister Butler last year in October. And since then, we've also been able to develop uh, what's called a consumer companion. And this has been developed by a person with a lived experience of ADHD, uh, Lou Brown, who's a, herself a PhD student over at Curtin University in Perth. And she's really taken the whole guideline and distilled it down uh, in a very easy to read, accessible format for folks with ADHD. The, the guideline itself is 200 pages or something. This uh, consumer companion is over, uh, only 30, so it's uh, much uh, better for folks with ADHD to be able to jump in and have a look. And the website, uh, our website, um, www.aadpa.com.au, has all these resources that are freely downloadable. And I think it's they're, they're really useful for giving folks uh, with ADHD or, or families the latest evidence regarding what are the most effective interventions, uh, what's the appropriate way to diagnose ADHD. So it's really about empowering people with ADHD and those uh, who, who care for them and love them uh, to be able to have uh, you know, the latest knowledge at their fingertips and really empower them in making good choices and best choices uh, in the treatment options that they might uh, look for. Do you... Um... You, we were talking before about stigma and mm. language, the importance of language. Could you just um, tell us a bit about your... Yeah, yeah. look, it's, um, you know, I think all neurodevelopmental conditions at, at some point have suffered from uh, stigma. ADHD uh, is probably a really good example of that because we do still uh, have elements of society that push back, uh, that reject the diagnosis and that... Um, you know, make some fairly outlandish, to my view, uh, claims about ADHD. And so this was another project that we led at ADPA and again led by uh, Lou Brown and another uh, colleague, Pip Quinn, where we put out a talking about ADHD guide, which was really our attempt to take that conversation and put uh, appropriate language about around ADHD, how we talk about ADHD in a way that will actively reduce stigma rather than talking about it in ways that might reinforce uh, stigma. And so on the website, there is a language guide that you can download. Uh, many clinicians have downloaded it and put it in a sort of poster form in their, in their offices to help uh, describe things to people with ADHD and do that in a, in a way that's respectful of the condition. And, you know, personally, as I've told uh, Lou many times, it's been really important for my own journey, I guess, as an academic and the ways in which I talk about ADHD and indeed the ways I research it are, are really quite different now because of that lived experience perspective. So in most of our projects, if not all of them for ADHD now, we have involvement of lived experience uh, people uh, in our studies because sometimes, you know, what I think might be interesting 
to study as an academic might be entirely irrelevant or pointless to people out there in the community who really want us to focus on different issues. For sure. That's like uh, engineers building something that nobody wants. <laughs> yes, right. Well, thank you so much today, Mark. We've really enjoyed talking to you and I know you're very busy, so we really appreciate your time. And we will put on our website your details and your on our socials as well so people can link into your website. No problem at all. Thank you both for your time and your interest. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favourite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 13114.